Welcome to another edition of Return to the Word Radio with Bible teacher Mark Fontecchio. Advancing the message of God's amazing grace through the teaching of God's Word. And now with today's message, here is our teacher. It's good to be back with you for another study in the Word of God. Today, we are picking up our study of Daniel 7. Make your way there if you can. Eric Arthur Blair was born in 1903 in Motahari, India. At the age of 19, he began his service with the Imperial Police in Burma. Five years later, he returned to England, where he'd been educated and lived in poverty, trying to publish his first book. In 1933, he released Down and Out in Paris and London. It was a book that described the sad conditions of the homeless and the poor, but in his mind, He'd resolved to speak out against the oppression and evil that he had witnessed during his years in Burma. So in 1945, under his pen name, George Orwell, he wrote Animal Farm. If you never had to read it back in high school, it's a condemnation of that type of society, expressed in a witty and sweeping indictment of totalitarianism. Specifically, the communism of the mid-20th century, It describes a farm in which the animals take over, agreeing to create the perfect society where everyone has an equal voice. But their inner nature wins out. And the pigs, by the way, are the worst. And the whole project ends in chaos because the pigs became more equal and used the new structure to become fat and wealthy. Now, considering the strength of communism in 1945, Orwell almost appears to have been a prophet especially if you consider his novel, 1984, which he produced four years later, that describes the terrifying life of people under the constant surveillance of Big Brother. But Orwell was not the first man to speak out against wicked animals taking over the world, because Daniel chapter 7 describes the real animal farm that has ruled this earth. Daniel had seen kings come and go, but now the vision God gives him demonstrates how heaven would prepare the world for the Messiah. The four beasts are actually a part of a divine plan. The Persians would send the people of God back to their own land. The Greeks would develop a culture and construct a language by which the gospel could be communicated all over the Mediterranean world. And the Roman Empire would build roads and write laws so that the messengers of Christ would be able to carry his word to the uttermost ends of the earth. Now, here are some things that we need to consider before we move into our study of Daniel 7. 2,600 years ago, when Daniel first recorded these prophecies, there was a lot of confusion about what the future of the world would bring. It's in our nature to look forward, and the people did. Understand as we work our way through this text that this is a very detailed and comprehensive prophecy that includes events all the way from Daniel's day up until the second coming of Christ. Try to remember back to our studies of chapter 2, because in chapter 2, King Nebuchadnezzar had his dream of the statue that represented the different Gentile nations that would rule over Israel. Chapter 7 records a dream of Daniel that is closely related to Nebuchadnezzar's dream, but recognize that Daniel's dream took place after Nebuchadnezzar had already died, but the theme is the same. Chapter 7 is not just a repetition of chapter 2. They are related, but there's some significant differences in the focus, the emphasis given to the events taking place. And we are about to see that only in the coming kingdom of God can mankind's purpose be fulfilled. 
Let's look at the first part of our text. Daniel 7, we start with verse 1. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream and visions of his head while on his bed. Then he wrote down the dream, telling the main facts. Daniel spoke, saying, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. And four great beasts came up from the sea, each different from the other. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. I watched till its wings were plucked off and it was lifted up from the earth and made to stand on two feet like a man, and a man's heart was given to it. And suddenly another beast, a second like a bear, it was raised up on one side and had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. And they said thus to it, Arise, devour much flesh. After this I looked, and there was another like a leopard, which had on its back four wings of a bird. The beast also had four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this, I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible, exceedingly strong. It had huge iron teeth. It was devouring, breaking in pieces, and trampling the residue with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. I was considering the horns, and there was another horn, a little one, coming up among them, before whom three of the first horns were plucked out by the roots. And there in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking pompous words. Verse 1 contains an important statement. It teaches, in the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon. Think back to our study from chapter 5. Belshazzar was the last king of Babylon. He was the one in chapter 5 that had the large feast while the enemy had surrounded the city. So here's what this tells us. Since this happened in the first year of Belshazzar's reign, this means it happened chronologically between chapter 4 and chapter 5. Now think of what this means. When Daniel had this dream, Babylon hadn't fallen yet, and Belshazzar was the king. This was actually about 14 years before the fall of Babylon. The year was around 553 B.C., and Daniel was about 67 years old. In other words, this came about 50 years after the revelation of chapter 2. And I think the principle here is that in the progress of revelation, God did not reveal all of his truth at once. He held it back until Daniel was of the age and experience where he was ready to receive it. And the same is true in the lives of believers. The comprehension of his word that he gives to us, it progresses with our maturity in the faith. We see in verse 1 that Daniel tells us that he wrote the dream down, giving us the sum of the matters or the main facts. This isn't everything that Daniel saw. These are just the main facts. And as you look at verse 1 and verse 2, I want you to notice that it appears the main facts that Daniel was talking about that he wrote down, it appears that what he originally wrote down starts in verse 2. So when he woke up after the dream he had, what he recorded starts in verse 2. And verse 1 is just an intro that Daniel probably added later. Because notice he shifts to the third person point of view starting in verse 2. Now, before we move on, notice with me that in verse 1, the text refers to both a dream and visions. The meaning here is that it was a dream. Daniel was asleep. But in this dream, what he saw, it came in successive stages. One dream with the revelation of God coming in waves or stages. In verse 2, there's a couple of different things we need to look at. First, Daniel talks about the four winds of heaven. This is probably the correct reading. The wording often means spirits, angels, God stirring up the affairs of men through his angels. But I think the four winds is probably correct. 
For wind simply means from the south, the north, the east, and west. Winds from every direction covering the entire earth. But it also represents something else. In prophecy, there normally is a contrast between the power of God and the power of man. So notice what verse 2 says. Four winds of heaven. In other words, God, God was stirring up the great sea. And looking at some of the wording that Daniel used, I get the mental picture of God stirring up a great storm. The great sea is probably a reference to the Mediterranean Sea. And we do know from verse 3 and verse 17 that the sea mentioned here, it figuratively represents the mass of humanity or the Gentile nations of the world. So grasp the picture that is painted here for us. In this dream, God is seen stirring up things on the face of the earth so that four nations rise up from the mass of humanity on the earth. This reflects the sovereignty and power of God to influence the nations according to his divine plan. Verse 3 tells us that Daniel saw four great beasts come up from the sea. They were all different from one another, and we'll see in a minute that they came one after another. Remind yourself that in the Word of God, the prophets used animals to refer to nations or kingdoms and their kings. In Ezekiel 29, the dragon of the Nile represents Egypt and Pharaoh. In Ezekiel 32, Pharaoh is compared to a young lion and a whale in the seas. In Psalm 74, Egypt is compared to the dragon and Leviathan. This was common then, and it still is today, animals used as symbols to refer to nations. Today, the lion is used to represent Britain, and in the United States, we of course have the eagle. The four beasts that rose up out of the sea or out of the nations of mankind, they were all different from each other. The first beast that rose up is in verse 4. It was like a lion and had eagle's wings. The lion, as an animal, has always been known as the king of beasts, strong and fierce. The lion has been used by kings to show royal power, 1 Kings 10 and 2 Chronicles 9. They tell us that Solomon had a lion on both sides of every step that led up to his throne. It conveyed strength and power. But lions are not known for being the fastest animals for long stretches of time. They can do short bursts of speed, but they don't have a lot of stamina. So to convey strength with speed, in this vision, the lion also had wings. Specifically, it had the wings of eagles, which would make this beast strong and fast. Chapter 2 teaches us that this first beast, it must represent Babylon. This is a fitting image because Babylon had statues of lions with wings at the gates of the royal palaces. But next we see that the wings were clipped off or plucked off. When Nebuchadnezzar became king, He quickly became very powerful. His armies were strong. His conquests, they were extremely quick. But as soon as he died, Babylon never had the quickness with its military campaigns. The kings that followed were killing each other to get the throne so that they were not focused on enemy nations. And the military of Babylon soon lost its reputation for quick and decisive battles. Now, this could account for, in the vision, the wings being clipped. Babylon no longer had such swiftness. And we should recognize that two other Old Testament prophets of Daniel's day, Ezekiel and Jeremiah, they used the lion and the eagle to refer to Nebuchadnezzar. The latter half of verse 4 is a clear reference to chapter 4, where King Nebuchadnezzar was humbled by God when he literally ate the grass of the earth like a wild beast and then was eventually restored as king once he humbled himself before God. 
because before this, Nebuchadnezzar was like a lion ruling the nations of the earth. But once God humbled him, he had the heart of man. That's why Daniel writes in verse 4, And it was lifted up from the earth and made to stand on two feet like a man, and a man's heart was given to it. Verse 5 teaches us that the second beast was like a bear. Living in Alaska, let me just tell you this, that if bears attack, they are tough. They're violent. They're fierce against their enemies. But this beast in verse 5 was raised up on one side. We know from history that this second nation was the Medo-Persian Empire. The description of being raised up on one side is such a beautiful illustration of that empire. Remember that they were two nations that came together. The Medes were passive and the Persians were aggressive and dominant. Therefore, the text says it was raised up on one side. This bear-like animal had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. It seems that the ribs represent conquered nations. And if that is the case, the three ribs would represent the three enemies of Medo-Persia that were all conquered, devoured by this empire. This would be Lydia, Egypt, in the Babylonian Empire. Notice this next part. It was spoken to it, to arise, devour much flesh. Again, we know from history that this is exactly what the Medo Persian Empire did. They conquered much of the world. After conquering Babylon, the Medo Persian Empire went on to conquer Lydia in Egypt, and their empire lasted for over 200 years until the time of Alexander the Great, until around 334 BC. Let's go ahead and read verse 6 again. After this, I looked, and there was another, like a leopard, which had on its back four wings of a bird. The beast also had four heads, and dominion was given to it. The third beast was like a leopard. It had four wings of a bird on its back, and it also had four heads. The Old Testament uses the leopard to describe quickness. It also refers to being bloodthirsty and cruel. And just like we mentioned in chapter 2, this third kingdom refers to what started out as a very small Greek kingdom. The king was Alexander the Great. He attacked the enormous Persian Empire, and in 12 years' time, he conquered part of Europe, Africa, and a very large portion of Asia. In verse 4, Babylon was represented as having two wings, which showed that under Nebuchadnezzar, its armies were quick, they were swift. Here, the wings weren't eagle's wings, but even just being bird wings, there was four. This represents an even faster army than what Nebuchadnezzar had. In his campaigns, Alexander the Great did what we would call today a blitzkrieg. He would take enemy forces by surprise with a quick and powerful attack. And when he died in 323 BC, his kingdom was divided amongst his four generals, Ptolemy, Seleucus, Lysimachus, and Cassander. These four men became the heads of the Hellenistic Empire. This is what is being referred to in verse 6, roughly 300 years before this actually happened. There literally is no other way to explain what Alexander the Great did, other than to say that God allowed this man to be in control. His armies only had 30,000 men. The Persian armies that he faced on different occasions had hundreds of thousands of men, and yet he won once again pointing to the sovereign hand of God in control of the rise and fall of nations. And notice in verse 6, this is exactly what Daniel says. Daniel wrote, and dominion was given to it. God gave Alexander and his generals dominion over these nations. Verse 7 introduces us to the fourth empire. Read it again with me. 
After this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible, exceedingly strong. It had huge iron teeth. It was devouring, breaking in pieces, and trampling the residue with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. Now notice the change in the wording. This fourth beast was so awful in Daniel's dream, he didn't even compare it to an animal. Daniel said it was dreadful, terrible, and exceedingly strong. Now, the distinguishing characteristic of this beast was its ability to break and trample everything in its way. Daniel made a point to let us know that this beast was different from the other three before this. I hope you can see that distinction in the text. The image conveyed is that this beast or empire was one of incredible strength and that it would destroy anything in its way. Back in chapter 2 in Nebuchadnezzar's dream of the statue, we saw that the fourth empire was Rome, with the lower portion of the statue representing a revived Roman empire that would come about in the future. When Rome conquered empires, it was ruthless. It would destroy and crush anything that resembled resistance. They would kill entire colonies and civilizations. They would kill people they had taken captive by the thousands and sell people taken captive into slavery by the tens of thousands. Notice that here in verse 7, we see the teeth are made of iron, symbolizing strength. And back in chapter 2 in the statue that Nebuchadnezzar saw, the legs were made of iron. And here, the teeth are made of iron. Once again, symbolizing the strength of the Roman Empire. And notice with me towards the end of the verse, the beast would trample the residue with its feet, meaning here, whatever was left from the empires before would be trampled. Daniel tells us that this beast had ten horns. Horns in prophetic literature are a symbol of power because animals use their horns as weapons. These ten horns representing ten kings are the same as the ten toes in chapter 2. In this case, the ten toes represent ten powerful kings, as we're going to see explained later on in verse 24. The Roman Empire began in 241 BC with the occupation of Sicily. It expanded slowly throughout the whole Mediterranean world. Western Europe, including Britain and Spain, and reached as far east as the Persian Gulf. Keep in mind that the western part of the Roman Empire fell in 476 AD, but the eastern government survived to 1453 AD, and even the western portion, to some extent, continued on in the divided countries in Europe. And when the Roman Empire is revived, it will be divided into ten parts with ten kings which is seen here as the ten horns or the ten toes in chapter 2. There will also be an eleventh king, which is the Antichrist. We're going to read about him in a little bit. And much of what is told to us about the fourth empire has already been fulfilled. But some parts, like the ten kings, this still belongs to the future. And because everything else prophesied that these nations came and went exactly as was described in these passages, it leads us to the conclusion that the Roman Empire it will be revived in some manner, allowing for the remaining portions of this passage to be fulfilled. Now, at this point in Daniel's vision, something different took place. The first three beasts representing the three empires came and went away in the same form as they had appeared. There was no drastic change in the empires in Daniel's vision. But in verse 8, this all changes. Take another look at verse 8 with me. I was considering the horns and there was another horn a little one, coming up among them, before whom three of the first horns were plucked out by the roots. And there in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth 
speaking pompous words. The new horn in the vision, it comes out of the other ten. Three of the horns are plucked out by the roots, and we'll see later on in the chapter that this means this eleventh horn will subdue three of the kings. We'll also see that this eleventh horn is the Antichrist. The wording in the text for uprooted suggests that the Antichrist will slowly come into power. It doesn't necessarily mean that he will take over all three kings at once. It gives the idea that he will take over those three kings and those three territories one at a time. Sort of like new growth slowly pushing out the old. And then the Antichrist will eventually take over the leadership of the remaining seven kings. A lot of people get the idea that just because the tribulation period is only seven years long, that the Antichrist is going to take over the entire world all in a couple of days. That is not what this text tells us. It'll take some time for him to position himself. Now Daniel says in verse 8 that in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth speaking pompous words. A few things we should think about at this point. First, the other horns represented ten parts of the revived Roman Empire led by the ten kings. This horn, Daniel mentions, has eyes and a mouth like a man. So even though the Antichrist will have severe demonic powers and possibly be possessed by Satan himself, he still will be in the form of a human. He could be alive right now and walking around on the planet. And as I have pointed out before, Satan does not know when Christ will return. So I think he always has to have a man ready. Could have been Hitler. Could have been any tyrant in history. Satan always has a man ready, working his way into position. Secondly, Daniel says that the Antichrist, or the little horn, was speaking pompous words. By this, he means blasphemy against God and persecution of the saints that come to Christ during the tribulation period. In our next study of Daniel, we'll see more exactly what the Antichrist will be doing. But third, I want you to notice something. A lot of people come up with a whole bunch of different views on this passage, and they fail to understand that the ten kings in this passage are all ruling at the same time. The eleventh horn, or the Antichrist, he subdues three of them and then comes into power. This has never happened in history. A lot of people like to find some kings that have ruled throughout history and try to make them fit. But ten have never ruled at the same time fitting this passage with the Antichrist coming on the scene. And so we know that this is all yet to come. Take a look at our last two verses. I watched till thrones were put in place and the Ancient of Days was seated. His garment was white as snow and the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was a fiery flame, its wheels a burning fire. A fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. A thousand thousands ministered to him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated and the books were opened. What an awesome description of God. Verse 9 takes us to the end of the times of the Gentiles. If you remember a while back, we talked about how starting with Babylon, the Jews were in captivity and under the rule of Gentile nations. That time period, all the way up until the return of Christ at the second coming, is known as the times of the Gentiles. Verse 9 in our passage takes us right up until the end. Here we see that the thrones were put into place or set up. Notice thrones here is plural. It could be multiple thrones because of the Trinity. Because we know from John 5 that Jesus will actually be the one to judge. So the thrones are set up. The Ancient of Days sits on his throne. The Ancient of Days is a clear reference to God the Father. 
It means that since he's been around before the beginning of time, he is majestic. He is the eternal God. It's not Christ, because we'll see him introduced in verse 13. But his white garment here is symbolic of purity and honor, assuring us that the judgment will be just. His hair being like pure wool, it signifies mature judgment. Keep in mind that Daniel is trying to describe something in human terms that is completely impossible to describe. Daniel says his throne was a fiery flame and its wheels a burning fire. Fire in scripture is used as a symbol of judgment and punishment. It's also used to describe the righteous chastening of God or the glory of God. So here, Daniel's describing the righteous judgment of God, and it's interesting because in the book of Revelation, we see John use a similar description to describe Christ. It seems that this theme is continued in verse 10, since this is describing the judgment of God, where it talks about a fiery stream coming forth before him. This seems to be telling us that God's holiness, his judgment, it flows out before him. Next, we see here that a multitude are serving him. This would be angels. And the words that translate into our Bibles as a thousand thousands and ten thousand times ten thousand, it literally means great numbers. Great numbers of angels are standing before God, just waiting to do whatever he commands. Daniel doesn't record for us too much about the judgment. He simply says the court or judgment was set and the books were opened. According to Revelation 20:12, the books record the names and the deeds of those who will be judged. We'll see in our next study of Daniel that the judgment of God begins with the Antichrist and his kingdom. Dr. Jeremy Begbie, he tells the account of being in South Africa. He was attending a worship service in a poor South African township. He was aware that the worshipers gathered had recently suffered some horrendous pain and loss. And he was told just before the service that a house around the corner had just been burned to the ground because the man who lived there was a suspected thief. Just a week before, a tornado had cut through the township, ripping apart 50 homes. Five people had been killed. And the very night before this, a gang hunted down a 14-year-old member of the church's Sunday school and stabbed him to death. This church had a heavy burden on their hearts. And the pastor of the church began his opening prayer. Listen to his words. Lord, you are the creator and the sovereign. But why did the wind come like a snake and tear our roofs off? Why did a mob cut short the life of one of our own children when he had everything to live for? Over and over again, Lord, we are in the midst of death. Once he finished his prayer very slowly, the whole congregation began to sing. And at first it was very quiet, subdued, and mournful. Then it got louder. They sang. And they sang, song after song of praise to the God who plunged into the worst of humanity in order to give us a reason to sing. They sang of a brighter ending to our story of suffering. The singing gave this congregation a foretaste of the end. They gave praise to a God who in Jesus had plunged into the very worst to give us a promise of an ending that is beyond all that we can imagine. Don't miss the lesson at work. When the world turns against you, it must not be that we wallow in our self-pity forever. Begin to praise the one who entered into our pain to deliver you from it. If you let the current state of affairs in the world get you down, your mindset is wrong. 
If you become worried every time something bad happens in this world, you're demonstrating a lack of trust in God. The right response, the correct response, is to be confident in the victory that is yet to come, to focus on the blessed hope we have in Christ, and to worship our Lord. Listen to the words of Scripture found in 1 Corinthians 2. Eye has not seen, nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him, but God has revealed them to us through his Spirit. Or consider the words of 2 Corinthians 4. Therefore we do not lose heart, even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Listen, Christian hope is not about looking around at the state of things in the here and now and fretting about where things are headed. It's about looking forward to the ending. 1 Peter 1.3 says, We have a living hope through the resurrection of Christ. Yes, both evil and beauty fills our world, and the evil blasts that come are brutal reminders that we are not home yet. But the beauty in this life is a constant reminder of a better life to come. And so we press on because as followers of Christ, we do not have to walk blindly. And we can know that when the end does come, we friends are going home. We close our time with the words of the Apostle Paul found in Romans 15. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Return to the Word Ministries is committed to teaching the full counsel of God's Word and the gospel of Jesus Christ. For more about our ministry, please visit returntotheword.com. Return to the Word is a faith ministry. This means we freely distribute the teaching of the Word of God over the air and online. We do this without charge. If you feel led to support the ministry with a donation to help cover these costs, you may do so on our website, returntotheword.com, or by mailing a donation to Return to the Word, P.O. Box 879-259, Wasilla, Alaska, 99687. Thanks for listening, and we pray that the Word of God will be a lamp unto your feet and a light unto your path. Join us next time for another edition of Return to the Word.